0: You're listening to the Makers and Mystics Podcast. This is the Art and Identity Season 12 Finale. Before we get started, I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity from our friends at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Gordon-Conwell is offering a Doctor of Ministry degree in the Arts, Ministry, and Mission as part of a new initiative in Theology, the Arts, and Gospel Witness. Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to learn more and apply. This season on the podcast, we have featured quite an array of perspectives on this topic of art and identity. We've talked about how family and heritage informs our sense of self. We've discussed how our belief systems, our childhood memories, even the places we live, each contribute to our identity. We talked about how our bodies, our ethnicity, our relationships to others, our vacations, And of course, how the creative works we make each become identity markers for how we show up in the world. We even discussed the role of emerging technology and how social media shapes the way we think of ourselves and of others. But today, as we close out this season on the show, I want to share some of my own thoughts on the subject and drill down to the heart level of why I feel this topic of art and identity is of great importance for this cultural moment. One thing each of these topics I mentioned all share is that they are rooted in ideas. They are rooted in ideas of who we are, ideas of how we see ourselves, ideas of how we want others to see us. They are rooted in ideas of what the world has told us about ourselves or of what we have believed about ourselves. These topics each reveal the essence of what we want our lives to look like, of what we want them to mean, of who we imagine will be in our lives, and how the roles we have taken on define and determine the extent of our person. Not all of these aspects of identity are chosen. Some are inherited, others are adopted, but they all become a part of how we think of ourselves. We grow attached to these ideas, we get comfortable with them, we wear them like clothing, we take them for granted, meaning we assume they will be a given part of our experience. The only problem with this is that to a large extent, most of these identity markers are provisional, they are not granted. And so the question must be asked, what happens to our sense of self when we experience an unexpected loss? What happens when a shift or tragedy or some unforeseen force brings our assumed ideas about ourselves to a halt? The singer loses his voice, the aerialist breaks a bone, the touring musician becomes pregnant and leaves tour life behind, the economy collapses, the world shuts down, war breaks out, a beloved parent dies or a spouse removes their ring, a dear friend withdraws without a word. This is where the interior life, or the spiritual life, is vital to our mental and emotional health. Our identity must be grounded in something deeper than the roles we play, even deeper than the art we are called to make, or the collected history of our dreams and desires, even the people we have loved and the places we have lived. If they are not, we may find ourselves scared, confused, or drowning in despair when the ground shifts beneath our feet. Our habits and patterns, our repeated compulsions, our daily actions, or our return to the same fixations each contribute to the shape of our person. They form the borders of our lived experience, the geography of our known identity. These cycles of repeated experience carve grooves into our souls and form our reputations. And these reputations determine the social narrative of how we are perceived of what others expect from us even what we expect from ourselves these reputations are the story our lives tell about ourselves but when we become so attached to these external narratives without having an anchor tied to something deeper we are shattered when the ground shifts the mystics have a term I find immensely helpful here. It is called detachment. Detachment is a heightened sensitivity to this miraculous existence we call life. Detachment is an acute awareness of the passing nature of things, which leads not to indifference or disinterest, but to just the opposite, a richer experience of enjoyment. Detachment allows for a deeper experience of life because through it, we are no longer bound to a condition or circumstance to provide our well-being. In other places, I've called this developing a holy indifference, which means living beyond the praises and the criticisms of others. It is the freedom to enjoy all things without being owned by anything. Detachment can sometimes be mistaken for a state of emotional reserve or of withholding ourselves from others out of a sense of self-protection. But true spiritual detachment is not a state of withdrawal or of uncaring. It is a state of being attached only to that which cannot be shaken or taken, the presence of God. In this way, detachment prepares us for eternity as it roots our being in the ground of all-being. Detachment reminds us that our core identity is founded upon God alone and in our relationship to God. Any other attachment is insufficient to supply our true worth. It is sure to fade or falter if we rely upon it for our self-worth. The practice of detachment is not a pulling away from earthly involvements. Rather, it is a posture of engaging life from an eternal perspective. This is developed through prayer and meditation and regularly reminding ourselves that who we are in our deepest essence is contingent only upon our lasting attachment to God. For the follower of Jesus, which is the root of my faith practice, this means that above all else, above my art, above my work and vocation, above my influence in the world, above my relationships, above the things I have accomplished and the failures I have endured, above the places I live, above my community, marriage or family of origin, above my desires and preferences, above my past and my future. My identity resolves in this, I am the beloved of God. Anything less than this is not worthy of owning my heart. I can enjoy all things when I am free from all things, but I cannot be owned or defined by anything other than my own belovedness. And this is where art and identity merge for me. When I am grounded in the ground of all being, then I am free to clothe my life with any and every blessed endeavor my hands find to do. I can enjoy finding eternity in a moment, and in a moment I can find eternity. I've used the phrase liberate the creative spark many times. The way we liberate the creative spark is by setting our art free from the pressure to hold the existential weight of our own worth. Our art was never meant to define us, but to remind us, we are the Beloved of God. And here I want to turn our attention to the role and influence of desire upon our identity. We cannot talk of detachment without also addressing our longings. And unfortunately, so many well-meaning religious leaders have skewed our understanding of true and pure desire, that many of us have often found ourselves believing that the truest longings of our heart are somehow wrong or sinful or that they cannot be trusted. And to be fair, there's no shortage of destructive desires or false desires that crop up in our hearts. There's no shortage of selfish motivations that pollute and derail our lives. But I'm not addressing these here. I'm referring to the true and pure longing of our hearts that do not lead to destruction but to the flourishing of life. These desires are not diminished by the practice of detachment, but rather enhanced because these desires no longer own us. They are harnessed to serve a greater purpose than self-gratification. Our desires lay claim to such a vast portion of our energy and focus. Our desires fill us with a sense of promise, They inspire us with hope and of fulfillment and of becoming. They instigate willingness to sacrifice other lesser goods in pursuit of their realization. We believe attaining our desires will satiate our existential angst and give us a sense of completion and wholeness. And on some level, they do, but not in isolation and not in totality. Our desires construct our social alliances and lead us towards cities and people and vocations. Our desire abides near the core of how we identify and define ourselves. Our desires shape us and give us a sense of mission and purpose. And so if our desires take such a central role in how we define our lives, it's probably important that we cultivate our desires and understand the true desire behind the desire rather than letting them run us over. The danger of desire is that we don't often recognize how much our desires are shaped by others. We don't always recognize the subtle ways we are influenced by external triggers like advertisements, popular opinion, cultural narratives, and media telling us what is desirable. Our desires can lead us into trouble because we are not fully self-aware. We don't know or understand our own motives, our own compulsions, or our own tendencies. Therefore, without a higher standard, how can we trust our desires are springing from a pure place? some desire springs from a deeper need within ourselves that is not necessarily a reflection of our true person but rather an attempt at alleviating some real or perceived unresolved insufficiency so our desires thrive best when they are brought into the place of prayer our desires so deeply shape our sense of self It is painful when they go unfulfilled or when we finally accept it is time to let one of them go and move on. Again, here is a moment where the practice of detachment can aid us. When a time for change comes upon us, or when change is forced upon us, we cannot easily move toward the newness of life if we hold too tightly to the old. We will end up grasping after a former version of ourselves that no longer fits the current moment and we will become at odds with our own life detachment can give us the freedom to move from one stage of life to another without losing our grounding in the eternal soil now the beauty of desire as well as the beauty of our dreams our inherent talents our interests and curiosities Or that they contain within them an eternal seed that does not shift or change with circumstances perhaps how they are expressed is altered but the life within them remains with us and this is a part of our unchanging self the spirit within us which does not change with age or circumstance We often think of our desire as something we either have or don't have with no agency to influence our preferences. But what if our appetites are chosen through a process of curation, much like a curator chooses and designs the works of a gallery? I did a word study recently on this word curation and discovered that the root of curate means curing of disease, restoration to health treatment of illness, a taking care, attention, management. So then perhaps part of our coming to wholeness in our identity, and part of becoming who we truly are, involves curating our desires to become a gallery of art telling the true story of our lives. This is something far greater than reputation. This is a deep inner work which flows from eternity down through our gut and out into the world. I've said it in other places that what we feed is what will grow. Our appetites are cultivated over time through repeated use and exposure. We form our tastes and habits through a process or repetition. Therefore, the person we are is cultivated even as our desires are cultivated. I think of identity as something both fixed and unmoving, rooted in eternity, and yet moving and fluid, changing in beautiful ways like the clouds in the sky as we cycle through the days of our lives. I see our identity as something imagined and formed by God, and yet somehow in the great mystery of our lives, something we also participate in shaping. This for me is one of the most beautiful parts of the salvation experience, partnering with God in the creation of our truest identity. I think it's fair to say that we live in a self-obsessed society. We champion self-care, self-compassion, self-optimization, self-awareness, self-help, and so on. And on one level, some of these things are beneficial, especially perhaps for a generation detoxing from religious abuse or recovering from years of bad theology. However, the mystics, those countercultural followers of the way, warned us against the deception of self-love and exhorted us that the way to true and lasting life was found through the paradox of self-denial, not self-obsession. The beauty of the gospel, whether you believe in it or not, is that it truly does fly in the face of our self-obsessed, self-optimizing culture who so easily exchanges the worship of God not for scientific explanation, but for self-divinization. The beauty of the gospel is in its invitation to trust. It is an invitation to do that which feels so counterintuitive at first. The Gospel invites us to deny ourselves and then with it promises we will find true life in this upside-down, inverted kingdom. The beauty of the Gospel is that it is audacious enough to confront us with the idea that left to ourselves we are incapable of transformation or of true self-optimization. We don't know ourselves like we think we do. We don't understand our own desires or even our own motivations like we pretend we do. We don't know what it is we are at the core of our being. This is why divine partnership is the only reliable pathway for art and identity to coincide. It isn't easy for us to admit we are out of control or unaware of our own motivations. But the gospel confronts us with this ugly truth about our own blindness and proclivity towards self-deception. And yet at the same time, it invites us to receive as a gift all that we have striven for, to gain through our own efforts. Both the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures give us an interesting picture of the human condition. On the one hand, we are given verses which tell us we have been reverently and wonderfully made. We are told we have been made in the image of God and that we are precious in His sight. And yet we learn as well that the heart is perpetually inclined toward evil, that we have fallen short of the intended glory for which we were made. We learn that our identity has been marred through selfish desire and evil independent choices. And yet we are still somehow image bearers of God. On the most basic level, Most of the major religious philosophies of the world will admit a similar belief about a flawed human condition or a need to return to some original state from which we have departed. Whether it is described through what is called the fall of man or original sin, or whether it is Taoism's aim to achieve an original simplicity, or recovering our fundamental goodness by chipping away at our flaws through discipline and learning or whether it would be a Buddhist approach to enlightenment through wiping out ignorance, or the Hindu belief in our human potential for divinity, which we achieve by passing through the veil of Maya illusion, or whether it is our modern psychology's differentiation between true self and false self, the major difference lies within the responses to this flawed condition. The way of Jesus offers an exchange, a conversion. We let go of our flawed, imperfect self and take on the identity and likeness of Christ. What a beautiful piece of performance art. We let go of our attempt to achieve self-optimization by our own efforts and embrace a grace given us through the cross. Following Jesus is walking out this exchange, ever becoming more like Him and therefore becoming more like the version of ourselves God imagined at our inception. The beauty of this grace is that even our worst moments become catalysts for transformation. And in this, I see the most beautiful work of eternal art. I think of the artwork of artists like Bernard Pross who meticulously arranged a pile of broken items to create the image of a man's face when you look at it from the right perspective. I think of similar works like those of London-based artists Tim Noble and Sue Webster who shine light on a collection of discarded items. The shadows from the trash form a perfect image from an imperfect hoard. These examples preach the gospel to me. They show me how even my worst throwaway experiences, tragedies, or failures, when viewed from the right perspective, can give a beautiful picture of redemption. They show something about myself I could not have seen otherwise. So as we close this series on art and identity, I want to leave you with this one thing to consider. I've heard several preachers say something like this before, but it's not who I am, but whose I am which makes the difference. And if I belong to myself, or if I am left only to serve my own devices, then my art as well as my person is turned inward and leaves little for the betterment of the world around me. But if I belong to God, then my own self-discovery is a partnership with the one who designed me from the beginning. This is a much more interesting quest and a much more freeing one. And as you've heard me say before, Our art was never meant to carry the weight of existential validation and we were never meant to identify ourselves apart from the one who gave us agency. When I begin my self-discovery through a counterintuitive act of self-abandonment, then I can receive self-knowledge not as something contrived of my own wishes, but as a gift from the one who knows me better than I know myself. Because there are parts of myself that are far too deep for words to express. In fact, there are parts of everyone's identity that remain still unformed or perhaps even deformed by trauma or difficulty. There are parts of a person too private, too personal, or too painful to be shared in a casual setting. Sometimes we don't have the words to let others in, and we fear that introducing this part of ourselves to a social arena would cause damage and so there can form a breach between our outer and inner lives. It is true that some things about ourselves may be fixed points, but even so, we are each a work in progress. And for as much as we would like to think we know ourselves, we are far too complex and far too much of a mystery to assume we can consciously know the depths of our own being. This is why I believe that only divine partnership can lead the way in understanding our identity, and this is why we cannot grow too attached to the momentary versions of where we are in a given station in our lives. Who we are is becoming, and who we are is the Beloved of God. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics Podcast. This episode concludes our Season 12 series of Conversations. We're going to take a short break for the holidays, and then we will return again in the new year with another season of conversations on the intersections of art, faith, and culture. We'll see you again in the new year. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.